1: I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm joined here with Caitlin Beatty, one of my colleagues. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Morgan. Welcome back. Thank you. Normally, you're the one saying
2: welcome back, but you've been gone out in L.A. for the last week. It was (laughs)
1: semi-glamorous. L.A. is awesome. What were you doing there? I was at something called the Christian Community Development Association Conference, which is actually where I saw both of our guests and got to hang out with them.
2: So who are our guests this week? Well, one of our guests is Mia Walker. Hey, Mia. Thanks for joining us. Hi. So, Mia is a graduate of North Carolina State University's Master of Social Work program, and until recently served as the training and re-entry specialist for Jobs for Life, which is a nonprofit that helps local churches address joblessness. Um, and then very recently, she became the Second Chance Outreach Coordinator with the North Carolina Justice Center, where she will help build support for the center's reentry policy agenda. Her vision is to amplify the voices of those directly impacted by the criminal justice system. In addition, she serves on the board of Benevolence Farm, which is a transitional living program for women leaving North Carolina prisons. And she is the chair of the uh, Mass Incarceration Task Force of the Christian Community Development Association. So you were probably in L.A., last week as well.
1: I know Mia because I featured her in a cover story for Christianity Today. Um, This cover story is about mass incarceration, and I did a lot of reporting on it, and that's actually what we're going to be talking about today, which is part of the reason why Mia is joining us. And another person I talked to for this story is Dominic Gilliard. Hey, Dominique, How's it going?
3: Pretty good. Glad to be with you all.
2: Were you in LA as well?
3: I was. As a person on the board of directors and the chair of the Association's Theology and Biblical Justice Commission, I kind of needed to be there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You should also talk about the fact that you walked a little bit to get there.
3: That's true. I was part of CCDA um, Camino, uh, the Walk of the Immigrant, where we walked from uh, across the border in Tijuana, did a special service for those who lost their lives during the transition of immigrating to the U.S., and we walked all the way from Tijuana to L.A. to where the conference was.
2: That's really cool. Well, for listeners who don't know, Dominique Gilliard was born and raised in Atlanta, where he completed his undergrad studies at Georgia State University. He went on to earn a master's in history with an emphasis on race, gender, and class, and then earned his MDiv from North Park Theological Seminary. Today, he serves on the pastoral staff at New Hope Covenant Church in the Fruitvale District of Oakland, California, and is an ordained minister of the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, As he mentioned, he serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association, and his church, the Evangelical Covenant Church, also named him on its list of 40 under 40 leaders to watch. And you have a book coming out from University Press. Do you want to tell us what we should anticipate in your book?
3: Yeah, the name of the book will be Justice That Restores, and it really looks at the fact that when we press into scripture and we look at God's justice, God's justice is inherently restorative in nature and not punitive. And so Christians, therefore, I argue, should be advocating and working towards creating a more restorative justice system as opposed to the criminal justice system we have right now.
1: So, yeah, we'll be talking about prisons, mass incarceration, and kind of where the church should or ought to fit into this conversation and maybe where it hasn't Earlier this year, I began work on reporting what is now our September cover story um, that examines Christians' involvement with the criminal justice system. And there's a particular focus on reentry or when people are returning home from prison. One of the things that we did is I, I worked with LifeWay Research to get some numbers On the extent that churches were involved with this, Um, according to about a thousand mainline and evangelical pastors, about 26 percent of that group has addressed the country's incarceration rates in the past six months, presumably from the pulpit. Um, And about four out of five pastors have themselves visited a correctional facility. Many churches, though, don't have formal programs. So about just over half said that they had a team from their church that worked in correctional facilities. About one in four churches had some sort of formal ministry to families of incarcerated people, and only about one in five, so 20%, had some sort of formal ministry for those that were actually leaving correctional facilities and coming home themselves. For this story, I interviewed people from prison Fellowship. I interviewed people from Jobs for Life, which is where Mia works. Um, I talked to researchers who had actually looked at the extent to which evangelicals had gotten involved in criminal justice reform And as mentioned with both of our guests this week, I worked closely with the Christian Community Development Association to find individuals to talk to. So the main question that we looked at is, you know, there's about 600,000 people that are released every single year, and there's about 300,000 churches in the U.S., and we wanted to kind of see why wasn't there more being done to serve this population If anyone is interested in reading the cover story, this is made possible by subscribers to our magazine. You can go ahead and order a subscription and you can get the September issue. From being a subscriber, you're also going to get the tablet PDF editions of each issue and all of our archives that go back to 1956. And this is available to you for all of $10. To do that, you can just go to orderct.com slash quick to listen orderct.com slash quick to listen. Yeah, I hope you can pick it up and just kind of see some of the work that I've done and also some stuff that our own CEO talked about with his involvement. To piggyback on your
2: comments about the print magazine, like as your coworker, I know how long you worked on this. It was probably six months in the making from beginning to end. I remember talking to you about your upcoming trip to North Carolina to do interviews like back in January or February. So this is the kind of research and reporting that Christianity Today is best at, and we can't do it without subscriber support. So this week on Quick to Listen in particular, we encourage you to support the work of the kind of journalism that Morgan has done here. I mean, I think this cover story will be read and returned to years from now. You know, it's going to have a long shelf life because you're talking about a huge and complex issue that's affecting local churches. So order ct.com slash quick to listen,
1: 10 bucks. Thank you, Caitlin. So let's dive into the discussion. Yeah, we're we're skipping gut check. Normally it's the time where we say all type of inflammatory things that we were <laughs> thinking when we heard about something controversial.
2: <laughs> yeah, no no inflammation this week. So I, it's been a few weeks since I read this story, but I, I remember like obviously one of the main themes that you address is the fact that, you know, 600,000 people in the United States in any given year are leaving the prison system, approximately 300,000 churches in the United States. So if you break it down just numerically, like if every church in the United States committed to helping just two people leaving the prison system re-enter we would have such a higher like success rate of successful reintegration into society, and yet we don't see that. So what's going on with evangelical churches? Why is there a gap between this population, which is quite large, and not all churches, but a lot of churches?
4: And what I've seen or what I've witnessed is the church is is typically um, absent in terms of advocacy. They're very good in providing services. And what I mean by that is like, you know, visiting a local prisoner, going inside, providing um, church service or feeding, but actively engaging and walking life with that individual. They, They seem to miss the mark. Um, Their posture is really just about, I just want to spread the gospel. And that's as far as my relationship with you goes. Um, I have yet to see the church engage actively in terms of um, housing and transportation or ban the box movement or, or even taking a position in legislation. I feel as though they feel like that's too messy. And that's even not even their space where they should be. And so holistically, it's, it's not just you going in and, and feeding the individual, which, you know, I know that scripture, but I don't really think that Jesus meant that literally really feeding and pouring into them and walking with them and ensuring that, um, giving them a space where their voices are heard, also empowering them. And that includes advocating for their rights, advocating for the right to vote, advocating for those um, sanctions that are um, applied at the time of sentencing and making sure that that not only that it impacts um, holistically in, in terms of the individual, but also their families and communities. And we're we're truly missing that mark. There's such a gap. There's such a lack of the church intake in taking that stand. And so I really feel like that's where they need to be seen. They need to be seen the most. So
2: if I understand you correctly, Mia, you're saying, especially I think of a program like Prison Fellowship, which is probably the most active and well-known evangelical ministry specifically addressing um, populations in prison, the focus has tended to be more on individual heart change or kind of spiritual development, but not so much a holistic material, social, psychological development, especially post-prison. So it's not just who you are or where you are while you're in prison, but as you leave prison, what are your full needs, not just your spiritual needs.
4: Right. And that's the biggest gap. And I think the term, I think the definition is is off. So, you know, most people, when they think of reentry, for me, reentry is just, I'm just leaving prison. Reintegration is an entirely different thing. I am reintegrating into society. And oftentimes, I feel like we are considered the other refugee. When we had those, the Paris bombings and everybody was in an uproar about Syrian refugees, and a lot of people were really outraged over the negative messages and, and things that were perceived. But in reality, formerly incarcerated are the other refugees, right? So when you're coming home, you're seeking refuge of the community that you left. And when you're trying to come home and to reintegrate in that society, the door is always closed. The door is closed in terms of housing, in terms of transportation, in terms of employment. And so when that happened, I was like, why are we, why are we shocked at the message of this population when the same thing happens to the 2.4 that are currently incarcerated and trying to find a space um, and trying to have their voice heard. And so the gap is like, where is the church leading that charge? When are you going to change the posture of your church and your message and really say, I do care for the prisoner and see see us the way that Jesus does?
3: Yeah, I think the the evangelical church, by and large, has uh, really failed to grapple with some of the scriptural calls um, in regard to inmates and prisoners. Particularly for me, Hebrews 13.3 is the one that stands out for me, where we're called to remember the prisoners as if we ourselves were behind bars. To really press into that and what it means, I think, will force us to acknowledge that although we are a people of the book and the book tells us that God is in the midst of redeeming and restoring all things to God's self. So we have allowed ourselves and our vision to kind of be co-opted by this perspective that allows us to define people by the worst things that they've ever done. And once a person has made a mistake that has led them um, to be incarcerated, they are forever branded with that scarlet letter for the rest of their lives. We kind of take a kind of biblical theology of We are called to be holy because God is holy, and we kind of take a set-apart stance from those who are not holy, those who Mm -hmm. are condemned, Mm -hmm. those who are behind bars. And so I think it's a kind of mental blockage for us that we haven't really pressed into in an adequate way. And I think specifically for me, one of the things that I really lean on is the reality of the prison epistles. What does it mean that four of the books of our Bible were actually written behind bars? What does it mean about the way in which there's special, unique revelation that can happen in the midst of this kind of isolation and quarantining from the rest of society? And what might the church be missing out on today because we are not actively engaged in communion with people who have been quarantined in those ways? To kind of pick up on what you and Mia were just talking about, I really have been guided by a quote from Dr. King who says the gospel at its best deals with the whole man, not only his soul, but his body, not only his spiritual well-being, but his material well-being. Any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually morbid religion awaiting burial.
2: I think we can just end the podcast there. So, yeah, going back to that gap in a lot of churches relationship, if there is one, with people who have been incarcerated, looking at just the spiritual, but perhaps not as much the material well-being. And we understand from the biblical vision of restoration that this is, a, this is not a full gospel if we're only presenting a spiritual message, but not a material message of good news as well.
0: This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions?
3: Get started at churchsalary.com.
1: Some of the other things that I know I talked about in my reporting was just the fact that we do not necessarily all worship in places that are equally affected by incarceration as well. It was really interesting to kind of like compare the different figures in my story about the the rates that pastors engage these issues or that what churches engage these issues when it, when you break it down by race, for instance. So we had one third of African American pastors who reported mentioning mass incarceration in the last month compared with only seven percent of whites. Um, and white pastors were also far more likely than any other group to say that they had never addressed it in a sermon. That was at 41%. We also see that about one-third of African-American pastors estimated that 10% or more of their church's attendees currently had an incarcerated family member, whereas fewer than one in 10 white pastors had the same. We know by and large that most evangelical churches are pretty ethnically homogenous or racially homogenous, and so that Also contributes to this kind of like out of sight, out of mind, especially for white congregations.
2: Yeah. And you quoted Michelle Alexander and Brian Stevenson as scholars who have done a lot of work on the connection between systemic racial injustice in this country and the way that the prison system is another example of racial injustice in terms of severe sentencing for nonviolent drug offenses. So let's just talk about the way that race plays into evangelical church's involvement in developing long-term relationships with people leaving prison or lack of an involvement, as it were?
3: For me, a lot of it is predicated upon a certain ignorance as to how race plays into this systemically and not just in reintegration i like to think about this area in particular in regards to prevention and when Ooh. we think about preventative measures when we know that statistically in this nation right now one in 3 black males are expected to serve time behind bars in their lifetime and one in 6 hispanic males are predicted this served time behind bars in our lifetime. There's not any confusion around the fact that race profoundly plays into this question of incarceration. It starts so early, and this is one of the things that I think most people would be really shocked by, um, particularly when we talk about something that's known as the school-to-prison pipeline. Black children represent 18% of preschool students in our nation, but they account for 48% of preschool suspensions. When you have a discrepancy with 18 and 48% in preschool, you just see that there's this trajectory that started when kids are so young, they can't even fully even understand the implications of their actions. And then it just gets played out Later, holistically in schools, African-Americans represent 40% of students who are expelled each year, and then 70% of students arrested in school or referred to law enforcement are either Black or Hispanic. And so you see this trajectory in which this, this way of thinking, this kind of racial imagination has kind of held us captive, and it even takes root as young as preschool all the way through our elementary school. And so you have Black and brown students in particular who are are kind of conditioned and they know that they're seen as suspicious that there's something racially at play michelle alexander says in the new jim crow arguably the most important parallel between mass incarceration and jim crow is that both have served to define the meaning and significance of race in america indeed a primary function of any racial caste system is to define this, the meaning of race in its time Slavery defined what it meant to be Black, a slave, and Jim Crow defined what it meant to be Black, a second-class citizen. Today, mass incarceration defines the meaning of Blackness in America. Black people, especially Black men, are criminals. That is what it means to be Black. And so you have a whole generation who feels this uh, very viscerally, um, and they are kind of trained to see and understand themselves as suspicious, like I said, all the way starting from preschool.
4: She also says that criminals are the one social group that we have permission to hate. They are characterless and purposeless people who are deserving of our collective contempt and scorn.
2: Christians of all people have really strong spiritual and theological resources to say like there is no othering in terms of ranking people in terms of offense, like before God or socially, like we understand all people are broken before God and in Christ all are redeemed and there's no um, distinction. And so to see people behind bars as worse than or um, unredeemable is actually not Christian.
4: I think sometimes the church has this fix-it mentality, like I can go in and save you or I'm going to bring Jesus to you. And oftentimes when I'm giving presentations, I tell them, like, you're so misguided if you think that Jesus is not already in the prison. I don't need you to bring Jesus to the prison. He's already there and he loves us.
2: So for for church leaders or pastors or just, you know, any Christian leader listening to this podcast who hears this information or reads this story and, and really is compelled to walk alongside people leaving the prison system to reintegrate? How do they do that without it being like, I'm going to bring you Jesus or I'm going to fix you? It's, it's a, there's a tension there, right? Because if someone wants to get involved or help, but they don't want to be condescending.
3: How do churches in a non-paternalistic way uh, enter into this conversation? First, there's a lot more churches who have people who are affected by this issue than they realize. Churches have created a kind of cone of silence around this issue. It's become so stigmatized. I can't tell you how many times I go and preach or teach at a church, and the pastor is completely unaware that people are dealing with this issue, and I end up talking about the issue, and people are lined up after service to come talk to me, saying this is the first time I've ever heard a minister talk about this issue. This is the first time I feel like yes. I'm safe to share my story. This is the first time that I I see that, you know, I feel encouraged to try to continue to press on because it gets so hard without support.
4: I always tell people they have to examine their internal biases because we all have them, but I also think it's, it starts... Actually, understanding the landscape of mass incarceration. I think oftentimes people are like, okay, I just want to go in and help. You know, those poor souls, they need us. But we really miss the big picture. We're not reading and learning about how we got here. You can't come in and fix a problem if you don't even understand how we even arrived at this situation in in the first place. Get to know someone that's in the community that's doing it and doing it well. And then building a relationship of, you know, how do I gently introduce myself into this and what does it look like? Um, Because these are people who have been damaged by so much. There's trauma, there's domestic violence. Um, there's a lot of things that led no one just wakes up one morning and says, you know, hey, I wanna I wanna commit a crime, I'm gonna be a criminal. There's so many aspects that have influenced their life and the poor choices that they made. But you have to be able to enter that gently and understand how we got here. And then from that point, really go back to your congregation and say, you know, this is a really important issue. And I always tell people, like, pray first. Pray that The Holy Spirit really speaks to you. And what is he revealing to you? What is he revealing to you? What you need to do with yourself first? And then what ways that you um, can become more proactive in prison ministry and walk in life with those that are broken and that really need to see not only see themselves differently, but really know that God really cares and loves them.
1: You know, Mia, one of the things that I remember is when I went out to visit you in Raleigh, um, I attended a Capital Area Reentry Council meeting with you. The topic came up in there about mentorship. Should everyone be a mentor, essentially? Or is that the role for some people? And not for everybody. Is there different places working within the system that are better fits for some people than for others? I just remember you just coming in there and saying, like, not everyone is going to be great at mentorship um, and not everyone should be doing that. Some people are going to be in places where they can better serve the whole team holistically, but they don't need to go in there themselves.
4: Absolutely. You have to know where you fit. Um, There are some people that I know and that are really amazing as mentors There are some that just want to do it because they, again, it's that fix it mentality. If I come in and I do this, then I know I can fix that individual. But you also have to be, you know, you have to be wary. This is a, to me, this population is extremely precious to me. So when I am giving presentations or mentorship, I always want people to do a check, you know, check yourself before you're going in. Is this what God really called you to do? There's some people that are good at this and there's some people that are like, you know what? I just want to be the other person on the other side of the fence. I want to be that person that's really going to like connect them to the resources that they need. I want to be the person that's going to stand in the gap and advocate for their families. We become so solely focused on the individual that we neglect the kids and the families and the impact that it has on communities. Um, and just like Don was talking about school to prison pipeline, you know, there is a 70% chance of children of incarcerated parents that will follow in their footsteps. So the children's voices are often left. Right. And then they're left to their own devices and they're trying to figure it out. You know, like, why can't they see their mom every weekend or why is their mom gone or why is their dad gone? Um, And so there's another there's another piece of this whole puzzle that's very important. So if um, you're not feeling comfortable in going inside and mentoring, then you can also use your voice to advocate for those that are waiting for them to come home.
3: Here in California, 70 percent of people who are incarcerated come out of the foster care system. When you look at the research that's kind of been done that talks about the psycho-emotional impacts of the holidays on Mm -hmm. children who are separated from their families, it's another very tangible way in which the church can say, How can we step up and love on kids in our community, love on kids who are separated from their parents, love on kids who might be in group homes or foster homes who actually don't see the holidays as something to look forward to as a joyous occasion? And how can we not in a paternalistic way, like just buy them gifts and give them to them, but how how can we invite them into our own home or create a space in which our kids are interacting with them and actually really communing together in a kind of familial, real, lived experience way um, that really provides um, a glimpse of the resurrection and the joy in the life that Christ desires to bring to all people. Like Mia said, there is this advocacy legislative branch of the whole conversation There are families who literally can't stay in touch with loved ones because they they can't afford the exploitative phone prices. There are policies around where loved ones ultimately end up getting incarcerated across state lines, making it incredibly difficult for people to remain in relationship and supporting and affirming and walking alongside of their loved ones who are incarcerated. You know, there's this term called prison gerrymandering that looks at how... People who are incarcerated from particular communities are locked up in communities outside of where they come from. And then when you count census numbers and there's governmental funding and stuff connected to census data, then that census data actually allows funds to go into communities that don't actually really need the support in the same ways as the communities in which the people who are behind bars came from. So there's a lot of stuff that the church, if it really familiarized itself with the nuances to the conversation, some of the legislative implications, they could see a lot of entryways in which advocacy for keeping families together being advocates for children who actually have had their parents kind of taken away and kind of quarantined away from them there can be very tangible on-ramps for churches And this issue is actually really starting to enter into the white community in a new way. And we've seen a lot of the advocacy and the conversation start to shift tenor as that started to happen. But there are ways to get entered into the conversation. Another way, tangible way, is around mental health um, and trying Mm -hmm. to advocate for mental health services. There's a great article that talks about how prisons have become the new asylums with the number of mental health services that have been closed across the country. The vast majority of people behind bars today have a diagnosable uh, mental health issue. If the church were to become more of an advocate for community mental health services, that could be a very tangible way to enter in. Another policy thing or something that churches could do is if your community is anything like mine, there are a number of kids on free and reduced lunches uh, throughout the school year who get those services Monday through Friday while school is in session. But during the summer, where do those kids go to eat? They don't have access to food. And so a lot of the access and the need ends up um, becoming very detrimental when it comes to like life choices like, what do I do? Churches can volunteer and actually serve as summer feeding programs where they can actually step into that gap and actually becomes a resourcing um, institution for communities.
1: Well, thank you, everyone, for sharing your thoughts. To any of our listeners who are listening to the podcast on Thursday morning, CT Magazine will be hosting a Twitter chat The hashtag that we're using is where is the church? Hashtag where is the church? And we'll be talking about all of these issues once more Thursday at noon central time. So hopefully you'll be able to catch that. Um, And if not, if you're listening to it after the fact, go ahead and catch up. Feel free to post any resources or thoughts that you have, even if you're not able to make it at noon central on Thursday. All right, we're going to be shifting now to Precious Moments which is time where we try to let everyone get to know all of us a little bit better and allow people to kind of share where they can find them after this podcast is over. I've asked everyone to share either a TV show or book or movie that's making them especially happy right now or encouraging them, bringing them life in some way. So, Dominique, can I start with you?
3: Yes. Um, you can find me on Twitter at W-E-B underscore T U R E and I also blog at c t o b t dot com and something that's giving me life right now. I've recently been um, going back and re exploring Lauren Hill's MTV Unplugged album and. It
4: is
3: just Ooh, yes. <laughs> so life giving for me, and um, it's just really giving me a lot of vibrancy and joy right now.
1: So, where did you find it? Did you find it on Spotify? Yeah, you can
3: find it on Spotify. You can also um, find it on Amazon. Most people know about her commercial album, but this was the second album after she went away for a little bit and reemerged. And it's just so much substantive and meat in in the content.
1: Awesome,
4: Mia. So, I'm not on Twitter. As of yet. We won't pressure you to get on. <laughs> but um, uh, my social media platforms are Instagram. Uh, you can find me at Mia Charisse, M-I-E-A-C-H-A-R-I-S-E, all together. And Mia Walker on Facebook.
1: But also give your website for your new job. Oh, yes.
4: Um, so I am with the North Carolina Justice Center and it's org. What's given me life right now is Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil's book, Roadmap to Reconciliation. I had the incredible pleasure of seeing her at the CCDA conference, and she just speaks life. Her book is amazing.
2: Caitlin, I just got back from a very short trip to interview Ann Voskamp for an upcoming profile in the magazine. Listeners probably know or have heard of 1000 Gifts, and she has a new book coming out, The Broken Way. And she was on Christianity Today's list of 50 women to watch back in 2012, but we haven't uh, profiled her in any in-depth way. So her she lives on a farm with her husband, who's a farmer, and seven children. Yes, seven children. And we went out for dinner together and I spent a few hours interviewing her. So I was really encouraged by that. And you can find me online on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty and at Caitlin dot com. What's giving you joy this week, Morgan? I want to hear about this closet clean out that you want me to help you with.
1: I actually stayed at my house most of Labor Day, which probably shocks Caitlin to know that. But I was super responsible and I like cleaned up my room and <laughs> by cleaned up my room I mean I also put a pile of things that I need to like sort through and get together and Caitlin has previously volunteered to come over and help clean out my closet so I'm trying to cash in on that offer this is like my
2: spiritual gift to friends I just love like going through closets
1: it's great it's really helpful to, it's, it's actually really fun to go through someone's stuff when it's not your stuff <laughs> um, you can find me on twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. And again, if you can, tune in tune into this Twitter chat that we'll be doing, hashtag where is the church. So that is it for us this week. Thank you so much to producer Richard Clark, who is actually on vacation this week. Thank you so much to producer Cray Alred. Um, we also are appreciative to Kate Shelnut. The show is on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast. Um, if you like the show, please go and rate and review us on iTunes. That always helps us so much. And we
2: currently have a perfect score on iTunes, I just want to say.
1: Sorry, I think I neglected to mention this earlier. But if you have thoughts and feelings about everything or anything that we shared, we're on Twitter at podcasts. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcasts. We always want to hear your thoughts, except when they're not very thoughtful. Put
2: the thought into thought. No, we want to hear those two. We might just ignore them.
1: (laughs) Also a (laughs) possibility. Okay, we will see you all next week.
0: Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms...